HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Schreiber, and welcome to The Shameless Chef, the show that takes us back in time to home kitchens in the 1970s, but still has a lot to teach us today. I developed this show with Michael Davenport in 1977. He was the original host of The Shameless Chef, and he shared his fearless attitudes towards food and encouraged home cooks to have fun and take some risks in the kitchen. I'm excited to keep this legacy alive and share The Shameless Chef with you on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'll share some of Michael's strongest opinions about everything from restaurant menus to kitchen design. Throughout most of the programs, you'll find that Michael does have a strong opinion about certain foods or methods of preparation, but ironically, he wasn't a very opinionated person. Now, if I was to try and identify any overall opinion he may have had, it was the idea of don't be boring. He had an expression he'd use often, I have a disdain for the mundane. Michael felt very strongly about two things. Life was to be enjoyed and people should be kind. Whenever we were producing the programs, Michael would frequently say, let's make them smile. And every time he said that, inevitably, everyone in the studio would smile as we glanced at each other. His goal was to impart a feeling of love and kindness in every aspect of life, whether it was food or just interacting with people. And Michael was a very proper person. He believed that life should be orderly, that people should conduct themselves with propriety. You can actually hear it in the way he delivers his stories and the programs. You can feel the way he structures his language. It's very orderly and proper. And he did it with a flair, 
My gosh, that was Michael Davenport, life with a flair. He almost always had a scarf around his neck or occasionally an ascot. And always bright colors, yellows, pinks, a bright orange, lots of color. It's rather common to refer to someone as one of a kind, but that phrase truly applies to Michael Davenport. He definitely stood out in the crowd. You know, he did have a disdain for the mundane. This is The Shameless Chef. In addition to cooking, serving, and eating, I seem to have an unusual talent for stepping on toes. It has been said that anything worthwhile will always offend someone. (laughs) I just said it. And I'd like to step on some more toes, including yours. Everyone feels one of two ways about food. Either it's just fuel, something to get into the gullet and fill up a hollow spot and keep one going, or it's outlined by very strong likes and dislikes. Then there are the cultists, whose attitude about food is characterized generally by the word don't. Uh, Then there are those who say, in the tradition of the famous Thurber cartoon, I say it's spinach and tell with it. (laughs) I'll bet you souffle that if you say to any gathering, I like, and name any food, and someone will repost with, asparagus, I can't stand it. So, that's it. Opinions and prejudices are nifty, that they indicate the ability to make judgments. But do a radio program on food, and do you get letters? (laughs) If I carry on about the delights of Viennese pastry, I earn the enmity of those who think that sugar is about as dangerous as arsenic. I give a recipe for something requiring butter and cream, and I get it from two sides. The Weight Watchers reply, well, that's all right for you to say, skinny as you are. And the low cholesterol people accuse me of calumny. (laughs) I carry on about salads, crazy or otherwise, and the meat and potatoes machos would have me pilloried, all of which absolutely delights me. I'm glad that we all have strong ideas about food. Well, better that than just considering it that eating is a necessity rather than a joy. Further, I love getting letters that upbraid me for one thing or another. At least it indicates that somebody out there is listening. The males, after all, are one of the main bastions of free speech along with radio. If I offend you by mentioning kohlrabi, I'm delighted. If meringues and mousses arouse your ire, I applaud. Food is personal. And don't, for example, get me started on okra. (laughs) My name is Michael A. Davenport. I have this to say about food. If there weren't any, there'd be no diets, uh, no grocery stores, or cookbooks, or kitchens, or people to complain, or a shameless chef. Everyone who cooks, that is almost everyone, wears an apron while doing it. I do when I'm cooking something elaborate and splashy. But the various aprons that you see on the shelves of stores in catalogs and kitchen sections of papers are enough to turn your stomach. This is The Shameless Chef. I hate aprons, generally. I think I started out hating aprons when one was draped around my childish middle when I first started being outrageous in the kitchen in my sub-teens. It was too big, it was too frilly, and it had flowers all over it, and who wouldn't be shameless? Then I became exposed to aprons of the cutesy pie genre. Aprons imprinted, I am the chief cook and you are the bottle washer. Or, it's my kitchen, stay out. Cunning. Hmm? Knowing my predilection for cookery, friends have given me aprons from time to time that I wouldn't be caught dead in in the kitchen or anywhere else. I've even been given what can only be described as X-rated aprons. 
Come on. An apron is meant to be functional in the kitchen. Protecting the clothing and the anatomy is not meant to have the questionable charm of imprinted T-shirts. Nor is it meant to match the frilly curtains that cover the kitchen windows. Okay, I'm treading on toes, all of you who delight in running up original aprons as wedding gifts. Goody for you. Now, of the two most competent and admired cooks I know, only one wears an apron, Jim Beard, the dean of American cookery. He wears an apron styled after the traditional butcher's apron with a bib. Granted, it bears his monogram, but then rank has its privileges. And the other cook is Julia Child, and she tucks a towel under her belt. Purple, usually, but that's her privilege, too. The best aprons available are those you can get in shops that sell chefs and waiters' outfits, you know, simple, white, long, heavy-duty. The other is the British butler's apron, same design, long-bibbed, but usually of striped ticking or dark denim color. Now, you just go ahead and wear those costume aprons in your kitchen, smiling merrily for the imagined photographers, but don't give them to me. Besides, I like to think that I'm neat enough in the kitchen that I don't splatter. (laughs) Michael A. Davenport here, otherwise called the shameless chef. Oh, yeah, there is one way to wear an apron when you're wearing nothing else. See what I mean by shameless? When you read a menu and discover items like uh, salad niçoise or bouillabaisse, you know you're getting something quite specific. But what arrives when you order hugs and quiches or the fall of the Alamo? (laughs) This is the shameless chef. Let's stamp out cutesy pie menus. In a French restaurant, you expect a goodly portion of the menu to be in French. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming, but salad niçoise is salad in the manner of Nice in the South. A quite specific. Pâté de foie gras is the particular name of liver paste. Again, quite specific. But why, oh why, do menus in English, nay, good old American, insist on being ditzy? Where is it written that the copywriter or menu writer is entitled to unlimited license? <laughs> the, the license to kill the English language. You sit down to order. Hmm? You see a toast to Paris. I'll drink to that, you say. That's not what it means. Read further. Quote, Texas toasts Frenched up, dripping with fruit topping and sugar lace. And get this. Howdy, mamzelle dieter, I quit. What is it? It's French toast already. Well, why not say so in the first place? I don't think anybody objects to a little levity on a menu, but I don't go to a restaurant to read humor. Bad humor. I go to eat, and I want to know what the bill of fare is all about. Exposed to most cutesy pie menus, all I want is a heavy dose of insulin. One tends to revolt and order a peanut butter sandwich because they can't ditzy that up. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Somebody will. Now, I'm pointing out an evil, I grant you, without suggesting a remedy. And who knows, perhaps there are those who like baby talk menus, like hugs and quiches, whatever that could be. Such a menu writer should have to write the word Tessaris 100 times on the blackboard and be fed bread and water for one month. <laughs> Davenport here. I'm going to write a new menu and a, a woman you. <laughs> Salute. Stay with us for more of The Shameless Chef after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. We're back with The Shameless Chef. Ah, sweet charity. I'll bet you a bean pot casserole you have at least one cookbook put out by either a church organization, a charity group, or some such eleemoisonary gang. This is The Shameless Chef. I have several such cookbooks, and here is a rule I subscribe to. Give the charity group the price of a few bucks and tell them to forget the book. I don't care what kind of a cook you are. Don't you think you can do without a recipe for, quote, nearly real meatloaf made with pecans and soybeans, unquote? I can do without that. Do you really want to know how to use those leftover gumdrops to make cookies the kiddies will love? I don't. Does your heart leap up at the recipe from some misanthrope that requires orange blossom honey in daiquiris? Well, that's the sort of thing you encounter in charity cookbooks. I mentioned meatloaf a moment ago. I just counted before I came to the studio. In the charity cookbooks that I have, I counted 116, I repeat, 116 recipes for meatloaf. And that doesn't include the recipes for leftover meatloaf. Now, I'm not knocking charity cookbooks per se, no more than I would knock Girl Scout cookies. But I don't eat Girl Scout cookies. I just buy them. The same with these cookbooks. I did hear an unusual tale recently. A friend of mine told me his wife had submitted a recipe for her club cookbook, you know, the Daughters of Hecuba or some such. They rejected her recipe. It was for a simple, classic, delightful concoction called a creme brulee. The editor said the dish was too offbeat, too exotic, too complicated. First of all, I didn't know such cookbooks had editors. This must have been a very classy club indeed. But creme brulee, complicated? Exotic, yes. Of course, uh, not 116 ways to make meatloaf. That's not complicated. Now, in the publishing trade, there's a term, vanity press. Meaning is easy to grasp. Charity cookbooks are just that, a celebration of the cookery of all the members. Now, do you know any club that, as a body, has a reputation for good cooking? (laughs) This is Michael A. Davenport, the shameless chef. Ooh, I will get letters about this program, doubtless. Okay, write me, upbraid me, scourge me in the mails if you wish, but please don't send me your cookbook. There's something very charming about all those lovely kitchens you see photographed in the shelter magazines, all glistening tile and dazzling artifacts, chrome, raw wood, and lots of utensils hanging everywhere. (laughs) Ever see a real kitchen that looked like that? By real, I mean a kitchen that's cooked in. 
This is the shameless chef. I think that kitchens are workrooms like studios and not display windows. Mildred has a charming kitchen. Crisp little cafe curtains, tiny geranium pots on the windowsill, a touch of yellow waxy buildup, and a cunning little rack of spices over her range. Very pretty. But spices dry out in the heat. They lose their flavor in bright light. They go stale when left too long. So Mildred's spice rack is nothing more than a dust and grease catcher. Forget trying to cook with those spices and herbs. Toss them out when the photographers have left Mildred. Now, copper and brass utensils hanging all over the walls of the kitchen look very macho, very male chef. I'll bet you a nice shiny quarter that Eldred spends more time polishing his copper pans than he does cooking in them. Perhaps Mildred and Eldred should be married. They deserve each other. If I'm insulting anyone, I think I'm sorry, but my point's simple. When it comes to kitchens, pretty is as pretty does. The most knockout kitchen I've ever seen is my friend Bill Holzhauser's, which is a tremendous hodgepodge of every cooking aid known to man, from big black skillets to bouquets of wire whisks. Terrines you could take a bath in, a minuscule pan for coddling one egg. But it works. It's a working kitchen. Things are not out for display, but just for easy reach. Ever taken a good look at Julia Child's kitchen on television? It may be a studio set, but by Juniper, it's a working kitchen and no nonsense about it. Just like the lady herself. Now, those that I have offended, have I missed anybody, are probably saying I'd like to get a look at his kitchen. Well, it's neat. It's cluttered but neat. Nobody's ever taken a picture of it, nor would they want to. Let me put it this way. Uh, you can't see the walls for the clutter, but then it's the product that's important. Michael A. Davenport here. Don't mess up your kitchen. Please, subscribe to The Shameless Chef wherever you get your podcasts. The voice you heard throughout this episode was Michael Davenport, the host of The Shameless Chef, who unfortunately passed in 1985, but lived a truly vibrant life. The Shameless Chef is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Mike Schreiber, with podcast development and additional production by Kat Johnson. The original theme song for The Shameless Chef was composed by Chip Davis. Armin Spengen composed the theme music for this podcast. The Shameless Chef is powered by Simplecast. The Shameless Chef is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.